Okay, good morning, Grace. It is great to be back with you. I had a wonderful time with um, my family in Stevens Point. Uh, Kim came up to visit me for the uh, uh, Christmas Eve weekend, and uh, we hung out here. I uh, got to go all three Christmas Eve services, and when we drove back uh, that night, had a great time with our kids and grandkids. We only had one emergency room visit, so we were good to go. Yeah, our granddaughter was so excited about her gift, she was opening it with a knife and just went, didn't, didn't cut any tendons or nerves or anything, but um, added some excitement to our Christmas day. All right, um, uh, like Jesse said, we're starting a new series, a three-week mini-series, uh, and it's regarding uh, one of the major holidays, major celebrations um, of the church. Uh, the church's three major seasons of celebration are Advent, we just went through that, next is Epiphany, which we're going to be looking at for these next three weeks, and then ultimately Easter. So I'm glad that you're here with this. Uh, generally, epiphany means a, a sudden revealing or a discovery. It can also be implied to uh, an enlightening uh, that allows a, a problem or a situation to be understood maybe at a deeper level. Uh, as Christ followers, we understand that while Advent celebrates the birth of Jesus, epiphany celebrates the revealing of Jesus to the world. Uh, one author describes it like this. He says, for the Christian, the ultimate epiphany is a realization of our need for Christ as Savior and King. And Jesus is made known to us. The Apostle Paul shares this quite eloquently in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 9, saying, in him, meaning Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Now, if you're new to the whole church thing, or maybe just new to grace, uh, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, and the scripture I just read means that, that Jesus, whose birth we just celebrated uh, at Christmas, came to earth for a reason. That reason is redemption. The forgiveness of our sins through his life as a sacrifice for us. And nobody on the planet knew this at the time. Jesus had to die. His blood was spilt that we may have eternal life once we trust in him to save us. So salvation through Jesus is uh, revealed to us, uh, made known to us, this ancient mystery of God's will. So we don't have all wisdom. We don't have all insight. We didn't figure this out on our own. Nobody figures this out on their own. And this morning I have a, a concern, actually two concerns. One is a concern that I have every time I preach. The other one is more unique to this passage. Uh, my first concern is that I will fail to preach uh, this text appropriately. Now, I didn't say perfectly. Uh, perfect preaching uh, is not a concern of mine. Uh, I'm not concerned about doing something, uh, about something that I can never do. All right? Uh, preaching a perfect message is not something I have ever done. Now, I fully trust that God will uh, redeem my flawed efforts somewhere between the, the diligence in my study and prayer, uh, through the writing and the speaking. Uh, God will intervene 
before it hits your ears. God will intervene and he will do his work in your heart and in your mind. I can't do it, but God can. Uh, my concern of appropriate teaching this morning really has to do with the deceitfulness of sin. Without intending to, I could fail to preach the impossibility of obeying this text apart from the power of the gospel. By doing that, I would diminish the glory of God and be moralizing the text and in essence saying, sure, if you just try hard enough, you can do this. That would be wrong. That would be error. While God requires our best efforts, we do have to act in faith, live in faith, and serve in faith. That's true. But hopefully you will hear that becoming a child of God, pleasing God, is completely dependent upon the mercy of God. The mercy of God initiates and empowers faith. So the title of our message this morning is Blinded Minds, Enlightened Minds. And the outline looks kind of like this. We're in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, starting in verse 1. Mercy kept hearts, verses 1 and 2. There are Satan-blinded minds in verses 3 and 4. And then God-enlightened minds and hearts in verses 5 and 6. Uh, this morning, the Apostle Paul, uh, he's doing what he does best. He's revealing the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus, who is his son. Now, this whole letter to the church at Corinth is so expressly gospel-centered, and it's so intertwined with the mystery, uh, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So the other concern that I have uh, is that because of this over-the-top uh, suffering of Paul, and the supernatural effectiveness of the ministry of Paul, I'm concerned that I'm not going to be able to reveal how uh, truly applicable this passage is to all of us. I mean, who can do more? Who can endure more than Paul does? That makes it hard for us to relate. So please be attentive, maybe a little more than usual to help with that. Allow me to read the first six verses, and then we're going to engage them. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to every conscience in the sight of of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their, in, yeah, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we pro proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 1. When we think about this ministry, this ministry that Paul is talking about, it's his ministry, the Apostle Paul's ministry, his eye-popping ministry, we've got to be careful. Uh, we must listen to Paul closely because we may be tempted to kind of romanticize his ministry, or just see the high points of Paul's ministry. 
And that's understandable when we think about the miraculous conversion, his miraculous conversion in Acts 9, his personal ultimate epiphany on the road to Damascus, where Jesus reveals himself to Paul in a vision, in a vision of piercing light of his own glory. See, Paul thought he was on the road to Damascus, but really spiritually he was headed to hell. The mercy of God was to take him off of this highway to hell and put him on the narrow way. God's mercy was saving him on that road then and there, and it was giving him this commission to share the gospel with the Gentiles, the rest of the known world. I mean, think about that exhaustive commission from Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at it here. Uh, Paul's account to King Agrippa, King Agrippa in verse 26. There Paul shared with Agrippa Jesus' words, what Jesus said to him, and the purpose uh, in making him an apostle. Listen to what Jesus told Paul he's sending him to do. Uh, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light. From the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That changes people's eternal destiny. Their destiny from hell to heaven, and it gives them the power to overcome evil in this life. Can there be anything more important? As glorious as that is, we've got to remember as well that, that Paul was in constant conflict with people. And the God of this age who fiercely opposes the gospel. In the first three chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of slowly introduces the uh, afflictions and the, the peril that he has experienced by sharing the gospel. It kind of builds to a climax later in chapters 11 and 12, and there he talks about all the beatings that he received, the stoning that he received, the imprisonments of him, the shipwreck, shipwrecks he experienced, the deprivations, the concerns for uh, all these churches, and that is a lot of suffering. So how are we doing about relating to Paul's ministry, maybe versus ours right now? I'm struggling a little bit myself. So maybe, maybe we can't relate to that, but we can celebrate the testimony of God's work in and through Paul, sustaining him. Because even with all that, Paul says that his glorious, eternity-changing ministry that he didn't deserve, and by application, the glorious, eternity-changing ministry that we do not deserve, and whatever suffering that goes with it, we must not, we cannot lose heart. And what we must be careful of is that we don't put Paul in a different category of Christianity than we would put ourselves. Your ministry, my ministry, whatever God has called us to do, it's just as important as Paul's. God did not ask us to be Paul or vice versa. Whatever the breadth and depth of your personal ministry is, that's not what makes it important. The gravitas of our ministry, what makes it seriously important is not the size of it, but who gave it to us. God, the Father, gave it to us. That's why we do not lose heart. God gave it to us. It's our, our glorious God that makes it so important that we do not lose heart. 
In verse 2, Paul goes right into the conflict with the false teachers and their false gospel. These false teachers were distorting Scripture for their own benefit, for their own gain. Uh, They were making their own earthly gain their teaching aim. With cunning, they tampered with God's Word to gain wealth, all at the expense of the Corinthians. Paul is saying that these false teachers were silver-tongued, self-serving hucksters, enriching themselves at the spiritual and financial expense of Corinthian believers. Paul blasts that. And then he contrasts that with the gospel. That phrase, the open statement of truth, that's the gospel, pure and simple. With Paul and Silas and Timothy, there was no dancing around or distorting their biblical teaching. The eternal destiny of Corinthian believers, what changed them from dark to light, from hell to heaven, was the gospel, pure and simple. Paul is telling the Corinthians, the proof of the unvarnished truth of the gospel that they experienced. They know it. Their conscience confirms it. God saw it, pure and simple. The approach of the false teachers was, hey, look at me and my prosperity. We lack for nothing. And let me tell you, that will entice. That won't preach, but that will entice. It will entice into eternal trouble. Paul founded this church on the gospel. He did this during his second missionary journey in Acts 18. And uh, there's a map right there that you can see it. It's just below Athens. Now, this is not a map of Tolkien's imaginative Middle Earth, okay? But any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Okay, yeah, great, okay. Maybe you've seen the movie once or twice. Uh, But do you remember Kate Blanchett's um, monologue to introduce the Fellowship of the Ring? You remember that? I mean, I love her accent and the poetic phrasing of Tolkien's writing as she introduces the story. And I can't replicate her voice well. I'm going to try. Uh, But listen to the words describing the, the valuable, powerful rings. She says this, It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was the strength and the will to govern each race, but they were all of them deceived. For there was another ring forged in secret to control all the others, one ring to rule them all. Three elf rings. Seven dwarf rings. Nine rings for mankind. Do you know what you get when you put 19 beautiful, priceless, but deceitfully crafted rings together? You get a beautiful, treacherously blinding, and unbreakable chain of enslavement to the dark Lord. In Corinth... Now, that enslavement is the result of the, the message of more cunning and enticing prosperity teaching that was authored by the God of this age, Satan. 
That's what obscures and veils the true uh, open statement of the gospel. Paul renounces anyone who preaches against or veils the gospel because he knows. Any message of salvation, uh, any hope of redemption that isn't solely founded on and singly aimed at the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, any false message, that's empty hope. That empty hope is a golden chain eternally anchored. It's a gilded cage forever secured on one end in the hearts and minds of those who are veiled from the gospel. On the other end, it's irrevocably affixed to the hand and the land of the God of this age, the devil, and it's for eternal suffering. The gospel, however, is pure and simple, and Paul would never get in the way of it, but only selflessly and humbly reveal it, pure and simple. And Paul stands in a long line of others as well. Having just gone through Advent, remember the Magi? Matthew 2, we read the role of the Magi, what they had in revealing Jesus to the highest ranks of authority in Israel. King Herod and his royal counselors. So, so how did the Magi reveal Jesus to the royalty? Well, first, here's what they didn't do. They didn't come in saying, Ahem, we're the Magi. See our wealth, see our power, our, our, our magnificence on you we shower. No, they didn't take that approach. They humbly, selflessly ask, where is he? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And we see the role of John the Baptist as well. The role he had in revealing Jesus to the common folk around Jesus' baptism. In John 1.9, again, here's first what we don't read. John didn't say this. Oh, the next day, he, meaning John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, a really nice guy, a really nice guy who will bless you with health and wealth and make you feel better about yourself. No. No, we read these humble, selfless words from John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul's saying, Me too. That's my message. That's the gospel. Remember, Silas, Timothy, and I, we revealed that to you in Corinth. Verse 5, for what we proclaim to you is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Paul and his posse were not in it for themselves. So they didn't claim privileges for themselves. Rather, they proclaimed the lordship of Jesus Christ and their servanthood to them, to the Corinthians. That'll preach. That'll preach to a heart that's not deceived. And now allow me to quote the blunt truth of Jesus as he speaks to the Pharisees in John 8. Uh, Jesus has just claimed to be greater than Abraham, meaning greater than the father of the Hebrew race. That kind of riled up the, the Pharisees. 
Jesus had just claimed to have come from God as the Son of God to be co-equal with God and that he will be the crucified Lamb of God at the request of God. The Pharisees are incensed. But Jesus continues, and he, he says this to them, starting in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. <laughs> that didn't go over well. And your will is to do your father's desires. There is no truth in him. He is a liar. He's a father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Paul's saying the same thing here in 2 Corinthians. The gospel's veiled. The truth is not believed because the God of this age has blinded. The devil has darkened minds. If that's you, if that's you 2,000 years later here, the alarming spiritual truth is that your daddy is the devil. Jesus' words, not mine. If you do not believe that Jesus is the exact image of God, fully God, fully man, the mystery of the incarnation, God taking on flesh, and who in him alone is found payment for your sin and the path of eternal life, then the eternity-changing truth is veiled to you. Your mind is darkened and your daddy is the devil and there's nothing you can do about it. If you do not believe Jesus' words, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father, meaning, meaning no one gets to heaven except through me, then you're deceived and your heart is darkened. And your daddy is the devil, and there is no hope for you if it depends on you. Ouch. But don't leave yet. And just so you don't think that I or any other Christ follower is saying this from some kind of holier-than-thou perspective, allow me to echo the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. There he says in verses 1 through 3, he's speaking to the believers there. He says, and you were dead. Okay, they, they trusted Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Here Paul is reminding this church at Ephesus that they had no hope if it depended upon them. They were spiritually what? Dead. Dead people cannot help themselves. They can't do anything to improve their condition. All of mankind are dead men walking, walking right after the prince of the power of the air. The prince of power of the air is what Paul called the devil here in Ephesians. He's the same one who Paul calls the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. All of mankind are sons of disobedience, children of wrath. The daddy is your devil. The devil is your daddy. 
And there's nothing you can do if it depends on you. But here's the good news, verses 4 and 5. I saved it for now. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 4, but God, in his mercy, there, we finally said it. It depends solely on God and his mercy. Was there anything else? But God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Whoa, God shows us mercy and love. Man, now we, surely we must have done something to to impress him, to, to earn that love. Well, let's see what we did. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Oh, wait a minute. That says we did nothing. We did nothing to deserve this. And worse than that, not only did we not do anything because we're spiritually dead, we trespassed against God. We engaged in the very thing that God hates. Sin. And yet, still, God made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace, you've been saved. It's a gift. We don't accomplish it. We don't earn it. We just receive it. It is a gift to us. God puts us in union with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. And the way we obtain our salvation and that standing is grace. Again, it's gift, gifted to us. It's revealed. It's spoken into us by God the Father of creation. Second Corinthians verse four, verse six, uh, chapter four, verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this may refer back to Genesis 1. There where God first spoke into the darkness, let there be light, and there was light. If so, then this uh, light is a, a metaphor for spiritual illumination. The veil has been removed from darkened minds, evil being overcome by divine good, by God. Or this could be referring to Paul's experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, there Paul saw this bright light and the accompanying voice of the resurrected and ascended Jesus. That's where Paul came to faith. Light, truth, broke in, were spoken into his heart and mind by Jesus. Or maybe Paul's just mashing these two experiences together through a, a creation theme. Creating the universe and making Paul a new creation in Christ. Either way, light is symbolic. It's not the optical glow of light that's important. It's spiritual illumination. It's the knowledge of our glorious God in the face, meaning the presence of Jesus Christ. So as I wrap this up, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been 
maybe disappointed in a season of life. Take a look at this picture here. This is a Wisconsin winter. That's my backyard. Now, there's some beauty to that, but winter is full of long, cold nights, short days. I wouldn't want to be a caught dead in a Wisconsin winter in shorts and a t-shirt. That'd be disappointing, disappointing to say the least, right? Now, here's a picture of Houston, Texas. Okay, I put my hand over my heart when I say Texas. <laughs> Nothing disappointing about that, right? Nothing. Actually, this is a picture of Hawaii, not Houston. <laughs> but they both start with H, so we're good to go. But regardless of the weather or the location, the scenery, and all that kind of comes and goes with the season, sharing the truth of the gospel makes Jesus, making Jesus known that is always in season. Amen? Oh, we missed an opportunity. Sharing Jesus, making Jesus known is always in season. Amen? Amen. The gospel is always in season. Paul tells us to share the gospel in 2 Timothy 4, to be ready in season and what? Out of season. Peter tells us in his epistle to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. The gospel is always in season. So applications for us. Grace, let's make it our aim to make Jesus known. This is a new year. It can be a new you. Find out, live out your God-given ministry. And in living out that design and living out the gifts that you've been given, you will make Jesus known to those around you. So let's do that with fervency and faithfulness that reflects the reality of being made alive together with Christ. And if you're here and you've not received that gift of eternal life, but maybe this morning you're sensing some of the darkness lifting. Maybe that darkness is being dispelled. Maybe the revelation of the spiritual truth of the glory of God is being made known to you, that salvation is in Christ alone. If you sense that, take that as we pray for you now. Father, in your mercy and your love, Give the gift of saving grace and mercy. As your word says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from you, you who are the Father of light. To all here who have been shown their need, that they cannot save themselves, where the light of your spiritual truth has maybe just started to show in their hearts, that only Jesus saves them? Once and for all, Father, dispel the hold that darkness and deception and the evil one has had on their life. May they know, may they know now, may they ask for and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and fully join the body of Christ as a new creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.